Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by Daniel Janine. Hi, Dan. Hi, Amanda. We are talking today, all day, with Robert Sietzema. Robert Sietzema is our senior critic here. He has been part of the New York food scene for 30 to 40 years. He came to New York in 1977. Uh, He worked at the Village Voice covering Cheap Eats for two decades. Mm -hmm. Before that, he had a journal called Down the Hatch, which was... I don't know, a little indie indie thing he sent around everybody. I think a precursor to Lucky Peach, really. Yeah, Robert Seisman was out in Queens and Flushing and deep in Brooklyn. Before you were born. Before I was born and before that was the cool thing to do. Yeah. So for this very special episode, Dan spent the day with Robert and did a little walking tour profile of him. So you get to hear about his career and about his favorite eats and... I don't know, his strategy for how he does his job and lives his life. So we start in Queens at a shop that sells $1 samosas, which Robert thinks is the greatest Subway snack in the world. Before we get onto the 7 train with Robert Sietzema, Mm -hmm. we just want to ask you to please... Get on the upsell train. Get on the upsell train. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe. Give us a rating. Uh, Write us an email, upsell at eater.com. Tweet about us. Tell your friends. Um, the first place we're stopping is the place, you remember in Seinfeld they had that episode where if you jumped off the seven train you could grab like a hero sandwich and get back on the train before, or maybe it was a falafel. But what it really is, is a samosa. There's a place here called Merritt Farms that's descended from what used to be a cheesy chain of uh, delis and grocery stores. There used to be dozens of these places all over the city. And they always had in the window French fries and chicken wings and, uh, and little onion rings, horrible looking. And then they moved that to the back. They still have it. But now they're selling these incredible samosas for a dollar a piece. This is the real Subway snack. These are just absolutely fantastic. You see how good those look? They're like, mm-hmm. and the thing about the samosa, even though it may have been uh, it may have been influenced by the empanada, which came went all over the world. There's something much better about the samosa because the <laughs> yeah. samosa is like a tetrahedron. Yeah. It's like your fist. It's like eating your own fist, and it's so delicious because it has cumin and a masala in there, and sometimes a few errant peas and maybe even a little bit of carrot. It is the best Subway snack in the world. For a dollar, you can almost fill yourself up on these giant samosas. Uh, one samosa, please. With chutney, please. That's all. Thank you. Look at this beauty. Now, you're welcome to disagree about this being like the greatest Subway snack of all time. Oh, God. I think I better take a picture of that, too. Now, it's good that we're still hungry at this point because look at how beautiful that is inside. For a dollar? Can you believe that? Mm. The show we're doing today is kind of the, the Robert Sietzman show. And you chose to start in Queens. Why do we pick Queens? You know, I find that Queens is often neglected. If you look at any kind of modern food publication, you'll see a lot of stuff about Manhattan. Less, but still a lot of stuff about Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. A bit of stuff about Queens, but not very much. And then nothing about the Bronx and Staten Island. Want to give the Robert Seatsman primer? I was born in uh, St. Joseph, Michigan of 
Dutch and Irish parents. I grew up in Chicago, in Minneapolis. Went to high school in Dallas. Went to college in Austin. So up until that time, kind of a Texan and a Midwesterner. Um, uh, my father happened to be a nomadic food chemist. In those days, rather than using uh, taste panels to decide what products tasted like, he formulated snack foods using the best chemical principles. And uh, those chemical principles involves using all sorts of additives and stuff like that, you know. And uh, I'm fond of saying that until I was about 16 years old and went away to college at the University of Texas, I'd never had a fresh potato. I ate nothing but potato flakes and canned and frozen vegetables. I, I basically grew up in the chemical culture of the last century, which was banished. Yeah. Um, when people started saying that additives are bad and pure foods are good, but then of course when the science chefs like Paul Lebrandt and Wiley Dufresne came along, they took all those same goddamn chemicals and put them back in the food. <laughs> you know, in order to make the food kind of like fun and bouncy and round and... Mysterious. Yeah, mysterious, yeah. yes. So, and um, at any rate, so my father was part of that uh, food culture of the last half of the 20th century. What, what did you study at University of Texas? Uh, University of Texas, I did a double major in chemistry and psychology. What did you want to do um, going in there? Well, it wasn't really what I wanted to do, it was what my parents wanted me to do, which was to become a doctor. Ah. So, uh, and I really was not a very good chemist. My father is a <laughs> chemical engineer, and I, I had difficulty following in his footsteps because I was like dropping LSD and sitting in the back of the chemistry class and going like, oh man, how am I ever <laughs> gonna memorize all this stuff? And uh, it turned out that I, I never developed my memory until I went into studying food, a subject that was of interest to me. And if I'd started that, I probably would never have completed it had right. I started in college because I was not a very good student. So what happened <clears throat> after school? Were you working? Uh, no, I went to graduate school. What do you do if you fail at college? You go to graduate school and I got a complete scholarship no to the University of Wisconsin to study English, which oh. is, I mean, it's been good for me to be able to quote half a dozen poets to love William Butler Yeats more than life itself. Um, but, you know, it never really did, did me too much good until I moved to New York and I discovered that I could parlay my education into a number of kind of menial jobs that included at one point being a, um, a secretary at a real estate company, mm -hmm. being a dummier at a book design firm. It's a job that no longer exists. What does it mean? What it means is you take big printouts of text and cover them with wax and then stick them down on a board so that the printer, the stripper, knows where to put the type and the photographs. So the dummier decides, based on a formula called the book design, what the book will look like. I worked as a rock musician, although I never made a profit at that. So what, what year did you move to New York? Uh, in 1977. My girlfriend had moved here. And like most Midwesterners, I thought I could never in a million years live in New York because New York had a, like a really bad reputation. It was like... Most people thought, from in the Midwest at least, and in Texas, that if you moved here, you would just instantly be killed. And, <laughs> but I remember when I first arrived in New York, my future wife was sitting with a bunch of her pals 
in an empty lot next to the tenement that was just covered with all these kind of hills and they were barbecuing hot dogs over a bonfire. It was like... What was the rock band? Uh, called Mofungo, M-O-F-U-N-G-O. You got to use the U instead of the O in the middle, but it's, you know, based on a Puerto Rican plantain dish with right. uh, pork tidbits right, right, right. in it and a pork gravy. In those days, one didn't really think of having a career. It was just like, I just want to get by so I can have fun and go to nightclubs until four in the morning every night. Were you eating a lot while you were in the band? Was it something you were already interested in? Well, that was the thing. It was being in the band that made me interested in food because if you're in a band, you don't really have much money. And between when you do the sound check at like five o'clock and when you go on at two in the morning, and the times have changed a lot lately. I mean, people now go to see bands at like nine o'clock, for God's sake. There used to be this gulf of time where you had nothing to do and almost no money. And of course, going to get really great food that was not expensive was the entire purpose. And were you the, were you the leader in that charge? Well, I did when I started doing a fanzine based on rock fanzines, but featuring food. It was called Down the Hatch, and I published it for several years, and I would send it to all my rock friends, telling them where to go and get food. What was the, what was the reaction to the food mag? People it seemed to enjoy it, and I became so presumptuous so as to start sending it to editors of newspapers and magazines, because I was frankly pissed that nobody was covering lower end and so-called ethnic food, food that was like really cheap and really good, mm -hmm. and said a lot about history and immigration and things like that. I mean, it was like food filled with knowledge and interest. And nobody was covering it. I mean, the, you know, the typical critic would cover, you know, basically places where rich people ate, yeah. which is still true today. Um, you know, there is a disconnect between the social class that critics inhabit and the kind of food that they're sent to eat. When you were in the early days of the band trying out different restaurants, were you just talking to the different chefs and the owners a lot to find out? The fact of the matter is that like today, um, many of the places I go, people don't speak English. And I don't speak a lot of languages. I mean, I can get by in a few of them, just barely, but certainly not enough to do a full interview or something. So also I found out that I wanted to know about the cuisines before I even went to the restaurants. So I amassed a giant collection of travel books and cookbooks. And I found that this ingratiated me with the owners of the restaurants because I kind of knew what the, what the specialties were and what dishes to ask for. And they would immediately conclude that I had been in the Peace Corps. <laughs> um, but it was such a glorious adventure yeah. going to these restaurants. And I never, no one ever looked sideways at me or acted right. like they didn't want me there. They loved to have people from outside, you know, who were not in that particular social or ethnic group because it meant customers, yeah, it meant people that were excited and it was mildly flattering to the restaurant owners. Um, I'm not acting like it's a big deal, but it, it, to mix people together in restaurants, to get one group to visit the restaurants of another group, it's like a peacemaking process. It's a way to meet immigrants on their own turf. Whereas in, usually in New York, they're all kind of like in their little separate categories. So the idea that I could go to a restaurant from Northern China or something and eat this food that was barely reconstructed from the food back in China, it was like, oh my God, I can't afford to go to China, but I can certainly afford to eat this food that's from Dongbei. So you sent the zine around to a bunch of, did you, did you have like a, 
a cover letter where you said you shitheads are only catering to the rich? Or uh, did you just send no, it? No, I just sent it. I just started sending it. And uh, that eventually resulted in me getting, in uh, 1993, a gig at the Village Voice. What was, uh, um, what was the conversation like? How did they... Well, when they called me in, they said, I notice you're like covering all of these restaurants that no one else is covering. Um, I mean, there would be occasional coverage, but on a regular basis. What it eventually meant was that I once a week would go out and write along, uh, and I would select, I would select the restaurants based on interest, value, and uniqueness. Uh, restaurants that had an interesting story, where the food was really good and really interesting and not very expensive. Was anyone else doing this in any other city at, at this point? Well, Jonathan Gold. And I didn't really know of his existence until Kate Crater, who worked at Food & Wine, gave me a giant file of Sunday supplement articles that he'd written. And she told me, look at this guy. He's doing the same thing that, you, that you're doing. And uh, I just I thought his, the stuff was fantastic. And to, for him to have that platform, I realized that he had called me on the phone a few months earlier to ask for a subscription to down the hatch. Yeah. And I had told him, well, thank you. I'm so flattered that you've called, but I didn't know who he was. And I said, uh, and I said, well, you know, I don't see why anyone in Los Angeles would be interested in the food in New York. Yeah. And I have to stuff all the envelopes myself. So uh, you don't feel no, like <laughs> I, I refuse to send him down the hatch. <laughs> but you were in New York City the first. No one else was talking about these Queens restaurants and the deeper. Brooklyn no, as a matter of fact, when the Times finally decided to do it, uh, Eric Asimov came to me and he, and I knew that he was an editor, and he asked to go out with me a couple of times, and um, I assumed it was to offer me the job at the Times, <laughs> and uh, and it turned out that he wanted to start his own franchise and he started the the under $30 column which uh, the problem is there were few few people that were willing to go out as critics and spend so little in other words the tendency at that time was that if you were a critic why not go to a place where there's some wine and you can sit down and you can bring some friends and you know I mean it's difficult even today to get people to go long distances, especially given the subway now, you know, to like say, hey, let's go out to, to Little Neck, Queens, and I hear there's a new noodle place out there, and it's like, oh yeah? They like the idea of it, but then when it comes to Saturday morning and they're kind of hungover, the idea exactly. of getting on the hour subway. So were there some, I know I asked you this earlier, were there some early things that you wrote for The Voice where you where you felt you were kind of making a difference, or there was some like some shift in the, in the foodie populace? Um, I think it did help, was one factor, and there were a lot of factors, like the formation of Chowhound uh, at the time was another factor that caused people to be much more interested, not in a patronizing way, but in an almost scholarly way, in the food that immigrants have brought here from other countries, uh, you know, and to celebrate immigration as a kind of engine of creativity. I mean, now it's a commonplace that every, you know, chef, every kind of fancy pants chef is making tacos and stuff like that. I mean, that didn't happen by accident. It happened because there were actual southern Mexicans here making wonderful tacos and people started eating them. I mean, 
that's the way America melts. I mean, if we're a melting pot, it's because successive waves of immigrants have come here and be, been accepted and been uh, loved eventually by the other Americans that are here already. So everyone is an immigrant except for the Native Americans. So then what did the rest of the 90s look like? The best thing was that our supply of immigrants and people that had been here for a while. I mean, because inexpensive food also encompasses a lot of European food as well, for example, and Eastern European food. I mean, we're not, it, it's, it's a pursuit that knows no race or ideology. Although I contend that as a pursuit, it's left wing by its very nature because it causes people to meet each other on their own terms. Hmm. Uh, when you go, for example, to a Mexican restaurant, to an Ecuadorian, to a Salvadoran restaurant, you are going to their institution and begging to be admitted. You, you are not forcing them to come to you. You are coming to them. Right. Um, and if you know a little bit about the food and can talk about it with some intelligence, if you know a few words of a foreign language, all the better. Can you just tell us what corner we're on? We are now on uh, Roosevelt Avenue again, underneath the clatter of the seven train. And uh, I have a couple places here that I wanted to stop at. Unfortunately, these places like this Dunkin' Donuts have kind of infiltrated the wonderful parade of food that is uh, Roosevelt Avenue. Oh, here's where we're going. Look at the, they've added lights to the marquee. When did you find this place? Well, I actually got this from, uh, from Ligia in the Times was the first that I heard about it and I just did knock me for a loop. What are we looking for? Um, we're looking for the man manchaca ta tacos, which are a kind of dried beef eaten in the Sonoran Desert and, and you have to eat it with scrambled eggs because it's so dry. But I've been here twice already so I, I can't stay away. It's so good. Can we get a couple of um, manchaca tacos? This place may be doomed. It, as you can see, there's no customers but us. And yeah. it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Oh, thank you. This is so beautiful. I guess I should take a picture, even though I have other pictures. Oh, isn't it amazing? I, yeah. Given the fact that this is the only place you can get this in the city. Oh, it's a flour tortilla too. I want to cry. Mmm. Mmm. Oh. This is heavenly. All right, this week's episode of The Eater Upsell is brought to you by Travel Portland. Which you recommend. I highly recommend. I've never uh, been to Portland. I've been there a bunch. Uh, we have an eater site there. It's one of the most vibrant and fun ones to read because there's so much going on in the food scene there. What's going on in Portland? So tons of great restaurants, uh, a lot of great beer. There's a big brewing culture there. Also very close to the Will Willamette Valley, which makes some of the best Pinot Noirs in the world. So mm -hmm. fun to visit. Also, a lot of great nature. I once went clamming outside of Portland. <laughs> really? Very fun. Highly recommend. What, what, what do you do when you go clamming? You like go out in the mud and you just stick your hands into the sand and yeah. yank out clams. You wear like big, giant rubber galoshes. Did you go overalls. with a clamming person or like I on did. some clamming press tour? I went on a clamming press tour. It was incredible. <laughs> anyway, okay, so Portland, great food, great wine, great beer. Great nature. Check out Portland. And also check out Eater Portland. 
when you're going. So visit TravelPortland.com to start. Or that, or go to TravelPortland.com. You can in Portland. You can in Portland. So you want to tell us what we're doing? We're getting on the subway to go to a place called Leo's Latticini, which is one of the old Italian cheese stores still in Corona. We're going to enjoy one of their heroes, maybe sit in the backyard if it's not too rainy. We're waiting on the elevated 7 platform at 90th Street and Elmhurst Avenue, and we can see the 7 train bearing down on us on the elevated tracks. It's headlights blazing. This is but this is what we need. So you said somewhere that the rise of blogs was the death of criticism. Did I? Yeah. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. What does that even mean? Well, criticism used to be, as it still remains in certain, and I'm just making this up. Yeah. Um, criticism used to be this thing focused at a single product. You know, it wasn't just a kind of general running narrative. It was like a specific, segmented, discrete. By discrete, I mean the criticism begins here and stops there. It, it's a gobbit. It's a, a piece of analysis. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that, everything became gray and fuzzy. It was like, when are you criticizing things and when are you not? When are you hyping things and when are you not? Who is qualified to render criticism and who is not? Um, is Yelp criticism, you know, uh, little invectives delivered by angry people who, uh, who found a smear of ketchup on their chair or something like that, you know? Oops, let's hurry and get this. This light. I, this is so exciting. I have not been in this neighborhood probably in two years. Wow. So, uh, so to see it kind of remade. Is, is Yelp criticism? It depends on how you define criticism as if a definition is even needed. Uh, of course it's criticism. Yeah. Because it criticizes. It, it, in its most basic meaning, they do more criticizing than they do congratulating. Uh, here we are at Mama's and Leo's Latticini. I think yeah. the sandwich shop is called Mama's, but even though I think Mama died a few years ago. And there's a neon cow in the window. Uh oh. Don't find out. I'm interested to know what's going on. Well, of course, we love this place, and we're just, it's, it's a podcast about podcast. the best food in Queens. Yeah, we're going to go I'm and so eat it. Now I'm going to say the wrong word. Not, it's not electronic, not, um, you know, like the computer. Oh, digital, right? digital. I'm not digital. You're not digital. That's yeah. what I meant. That's good. And you know what's funny is because people come here and they find us themselves on the Google, on all this stuff. Right, and right. We don't, have, we don't even have a website. We should have a website. No, it's great we that you don't. Upstairs. We still, we're here 85 years. My grandmother's counter. We still have the same. We're still doing the same thing, making mozzarella. And then of the course. bakery. That's our, That's where we're going for our sandwich. And there's a backyard, and it's a beautiful backyard. In the yes, house. we love it. Okay. We're hoping to what relax there. Irene. Daniel, nice to Daniel. meet you. And Robert. We're just, nice a couple, we're just a couple of food fans. Okay. So now we have, seem to have developed a personal relationship with the, with the people running this place, and we don't know if we'll actually be able to extract ourselves from this inner sanctum <laughs> where they turn on the fountain just for us. Did you get some good fountain sounds? Uh, I'm going to go get some. I'll come over with my mic here. Get some fountain noise. This is Mama's sandwich. Yeah. Uh, it has uh, mushrooms and uh, peppers 
and uh, a ham called prosciutini. Why did you want to come here today on this? On I this wanted to inch. blow your mind with, with a really old-fashioned place where everything was kind of like the same as it was like 80 years ago and where yeah. there are still like little old Italian ladies doing this and that. And, uh, and it makes a nice contrast, you know, with all the other ethnic food that we're doing, that we're doing um, Italian as well. When you go out and eat with people, and they're commenting constantly on the taste and stuff. You're very gracious about it, but is it, are you curious what they think or is it annoying when they're trying to tell you kind of what their criticism is? Um, I am super curious because I often incorporate their opinions yeah. into my work, either explicitly or implicitly. Keeping up with what people think about food is part of the most important part of my job. It would be easy enough just to render an instant opinion about everything. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's the number one qualification of being a food critic, is instantly coming up with an opinion, no matter right or wrong or crazy or on, on the money. But to incorporate the opinions of other people, to try to develop in your own mind a consensus of what the people that are with you eating it, and even more what your readers would think about something, are really is really important, because basically this is a service job. It's like... I'm telling people where to eat and where to spend their hard-earned money. You know, now they, they've, we've interfaced with them a tiny bit. Um, it begs the question, what, what does anonymity look like in, in 2018? With me, it's still really good. You noticed I had no problem hanging behind you. The woman from AM New York had no idea that I was the subject of the well, interview think I'm and the star. not you. Mm -hmm. You are the celebrity now. You're the one whose face will be posted in every restaurant from here to Timbuktu. Do you think that we have lost that obsession with anonymity? Well, I haven't lost that obsession, which is all that really matters as far as I'm concerned. It makes it much easier for me mm -hmm. to be one of the few anonymous critics. I can go into any restaurant and nobody notices I'm there. I mean, nowadays with my granddaughter, I even have a baby sometimes. So, <laughs> so it's like, who would ever think a critic in their right mind would bring a baby into a restaurant? And some critics have been have become like, food celebrities now. Very intentionally so. I mean, to become a non-anonymous critic requires just that you behave like a critic and kind of announce your presence and use your own credit card and all these things that critics have been doing for years because they love to be recognized in general. Is anonymity a crucial part of being a critic, of being a good critic? Or is Let like me say it's an important tool <clears throat> that it helps you to get exactly what everyone else gets. Now, in this case, there was no choice. The sandwich had already been made. It was on the counter. They weren't going to put, like, extra cold cuts in there, so we know. Yeah. But in many cases, if you are recognized or they think you have some pretense, they will, uh, they will make a sandwich that's different. And then when I say, oh, this is the thickest sandwich I've ever seen in my life, and then someone else comes and gets it and it only has one little piece of prosciutto in it, then it, I will be a liar. Do you think it's maybe easier in, the, in, the, in your beat in these kind of smaller mom-and-pop places than it is to remain anonymous in the big, fancy Manhattan restaurants? Doubtlessly, although I swear critics claim to be recognized much more often than they actually are. <laughs> it's a rare restaurant that can afford to put a person at the door who is adept at re recognizing all of the influencers that might be important. And that probably extends, in New York City at least, to 100 people. You know, maybe there's only five or six people that are called critics who have budgets where they can visit the restaurant. But then there's, you know, like important other chefs and all sorts of other people. So you don't consider yourself like a cheap eats critic 
You just um, do the things that you're interested in. I'm just a critic, but Cheap Eats always has an edge over everything else yeah. because it's something that's, especially with my consumerist attitudes, it's useful to the readers. Uh, you know, there's always a debate. Is criticism fantasy? Is it a kind of food pornography? Or is it practical? And a balance has to be struck. But mm -hmm. I fall down on the side of practical that, you know, for me to tell people that they really ought to drag their asses off of the seven line yeah. and walk down here and eat one of these hero sandwiches, I mean, it's like history on a plate. Hey, we caught the train. Wow, here it comes. You spend a lot of time on the subway, right? Oh, God, yes. And the subway service has gotten worse and worse. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. We're pulling into downtown Flushing right now. Everyone, please leave the train. Thank you for riding with MTA New York City Transit. Thank you, my ass. <laughs> Thank you for, do we have any choice? <laughs> when did you first, when do you think you first went out to Flushing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say it was probably pretty early. Uh, when this was still mainly a Taiwanese neighborhood and the food reflected it. Um, in other words, all of the Szechuan restaurants kind of had no Szechuan peppercorns. Uh, there were starting to be some hot pot places. This would probably be in the early, around 1990. Okay, I always have to orient myself. Over there is the New World Mall, which is a kind of popular food mall, but we're going to go first and get the famous $1 Peking duck bao, which has been around for about 15 years, caused a foodie sensation. That place right there, the Shanghai Yu Garden, is where the most famous um, Shanghai soup dumpling maker currently resides. I mean, if we had any sense at all, we would dash in there and have some Shanghai soup dumplings because they're so good. Okay, here we are. This is the new Corner 28 premises with the wonderful Peking duck. Whoa. <laughs> Can I get two duck buns? They're preparing our buns in the corner there. 250? They raised the price. Devastating? No, no, now they're a dollar and a quarter, but I mean, that's perfectly fine. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is one of the great dishes of, oh my God, look at that. Oh, aren't those perfect? This is one of several unheralded food courts known only to Chinese people where getting in and getting out is such a difficulty. Mm. Think of how much better it would have been at a dollar. So now that everyone writes about flushing, is it harder for you to get a story out here? Everyone writes about the same thing over and over again. You can get a story here in 20 minutes within four blocks of the train any day of the week. Like every, every, they're always serving like new stuff. Ooh, those look good. The fish balls. Yeah. Deep fried fish balls. Is it fun that everyone's writing about this? It's gratifying. It's essential. It's necessary. It's good. Yeah, it's good. So I've, I've pushed you on trying to drag me somewhere where you feel like your writing made a difference. And that's where we're going. Yes, we are going to the Dosa Hut with two T's. Um, 
if I have a single proud accomplishment, it's having talked about and promoted dosas. Ever since I ate one in the early 1980s at a chain restaurant called Madras Woodlands, which is the first to, uh, to feature it. As we're talking, we're heading south on Bound, a magnificent temple to the great Indian god Ganesh, or Ganesha, is rising up on the left. And it is next to that temple that Dosa Hut with two T's flourishes. So do you remember what you first said about the Dosa? I remember, the, I heard about this place selling Dosas that wasn't the recently closed Madras Woodlands. Mm -hmm. I heard about it from this photographer named Linda Rutenberg, who had been sent down from Canada to take photographs for a book that I'd written called Secret New York. And she reported to me that there was this magnificent place next to this incredible temple where they were selling all this South Indian food. And it was at the time one of the few places selling the South Indian kind of pan South Indian vegetarian cuisine of India. And there it is right now, the Dosa Hut. It's yeah. still here. And as far as you know, when you first wrote about this place, this was where you would get a dosa in New York? Oh yeah, it was one of the few places that served them. Can we get a butter masala? Okay. Uh, butter masala misora dosa? It was after many visits that I learned which my favorite one was, which was the richest. And this is, this is it with- uh, Am I okay doing that? Yeah, go ahead, just rip it open. And the trick is to kind of like, just kind of pick up little pieces like oh, okay, this. And... Okay. Oh my God. Yeah, good. This is butter? Oh yeah, this is a butter one. They just pour butter on it. How could that be bad? It almost seems like you've created lots of little places that you're invested in. The more you build of them, the more responsibility you have to keep checking on them and making sure that A, your word is still good and B, they're not gonna die out. Well, but keep in mind, this is a comically small percentage of the places I actually cover. Most places, they either rise or fall based on their own excellence mm -hmm. and other factors like how many people from that particular cultural group are willing to go there on a regular basis and what is the proximity to a, an active community of that group, et cetera, et cetera. So it is only in a handful of places that I've really made a difference. No. Yeah, and in those, I'm just proud as punch to have kept some places going that, uh, and it's, it happens that about a couple times a year that I will hear from some restaurateur that says, thank God you wrote about me, I was about to die or whatever, so. Any particularly memorable ones? Uh, nothing I can think of at the moment, but, or care to think of at the moment, but. Because it's probably not, it's probably not what you even like to think about. Right, yes, no, I mean, I'm mainly interested in eating good food and trying to describe it. And everything else is a happy accident? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the people that I've gone out with over the years that have made it bearable. You know, I mean, my, my, I may have a broader audience, but it's my immediate audience of friends that like to eat food. Like I like to eat the food that, you know, has been uh, the most rewarding probably. Plus the fun of being in neighborhoods like this. I mean, yeah. otherwise, why would you stumble into this neighborhood? An excuse to do something yeah. rather than just sit on my hands and watch Netflix. It's almost like you have to, when you're really full, you have to remind yourself to appreciate how good the thing tastes. It's that exactly true. And I often wonder about things like that, how they affect my response and the response of other food writers. For example, 
Does something you eat after a long binge of several restaurants, is it harder for that food to make an impression on you? Um, if you're in a bummed out mood, does the food taste worse? Does your review of a restaurant depend on the frame of mind you're in when you eat there? And of course it partly does. I mean, you're expected to kind of level out these impressions, but at the same time, there's no doubt that the personality of the reviewer always intrudes just a little too much into the account of the restaurant. How do you grapple? I, I just grapple. It's like arm wrestling with yourself. Oh, we should do some closing thoughts. Closing thoughts on a day well spent. Well spent. You said earlier about something else that you craved huge emotional reactions to things that you don't have them as many anymore. As you go and try new foods, do you ever have explosive reactions to things? Oh, God, yes. But they often come from micro-experiences that are not the kind of big-ticket dinner. Mm -hmm. It's uh, like to eat some appetizer, some snack that I've never eaten before. Like a dish like goat soup from a Nigerian restaurant, like goat pepper soup, where the, it explodes with the flavor of grains of paradise where the goat is just like giant skanky hunks that have been recently ripped from the animal. Mm -hmm. The, you know, things <laughs> that are just bold flavors. And because yeah. really the longer, um, the longer you eat restaurant food, the more you crave bold flavors and, and dramatic juxtapositions. What are some deep philosophical thoughts you have had about food and your job recently? Uh, well, people are always telling me that I have the greatest job in the world, and I usually believe them. Um, yeah. It's a lot of work. Is it useful to the world only in that I am chronicling a world that will seem so strange to people in the future? That because it runs contradictory to many of the tendencies of the world today, the overpopulation, the starvation. It's ironic that we here in New York can kind of, without having a lot of money really, enjoy whatever food we want, that we can go to a dinner among rich people and not feel like we're overextending ourselves. It's a blessing and yet it will seem, what will it seem like 30 years from now? There are not really enough pleasures in modern life, are there? What do, like, we, what do we have? Eating a good meal that it contains things that you've never experienced before is better than Netflix. Better than Netflix binge. <laughs> what if you're watching a food show? I hate food shows. <laughs> I can barely stand to watch them, except the great bake-off. I kind of like that. It's so <laughs> civilized. There are other people, although few, who have written in a similar style over as long a period of time. That's right. What do you think? How has your approach been different? Um, I can't say that it really is different. There, but there are probably no more than just a few people that kind of take the same approach. I, I wasn't the first and I won't be the last. It's a role, a societal role that needs to be fulfilled no matter how trivial. Thanks for listening to the Eater Upsell. My name is Daniel Janine. 
My co-host is Amanda Clute, our editor-in-chief, and that was Robert Sietzma. You can find all of his work on Eater New York and follow him on Twitter at Robert Sietzma. Theater Upsell is recorded at the Vox Media Studios in New York, New York. Vox's engineer is Miles Ewell. Carrie Clements handles all of our bookings. And our executive producer is Maureen Giannone Fitzgerald. <laughs>